Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Good afternoon, or good morning, good night, whatever it might be. Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know. Deacon Jacob here with... Father John. What do you say to people in the afternoons? You know? Buenas tardes. Buenas tardes. Yeah, but I mean in, in American, in English. What's, uh, what's up? What's up? Good afternoon. Sounds a little formal, so... Yeah, I don't even know. Um, I'm intrigued. I walked into Father John's office to record this. Uh, sorry if it's a little echoey. We've got high ceilings. Um, now you'll focus on that, so right. sorry. Yeah, exactly. Um, and right in front of my chair, there's uh, soap, toothpaste, deodorant, body wash, and I'm like... You you telling me something? Zen and Homobusius <laughs> by Ferdinand Ulrich. I feel like this is an intervention. Yeah, so uh, yeah, we had a very interesting morning, and we have a lot of banter and a lot of stuff to cover today, but I'll make this brief. I got a phone call. I'm at a class at um, 1045. Now, my, there's three parish houses where guys live off campus, and mine is the notoriously ghetto one. Yeah, pretty janky. Very janky. Beautiful old structure. Well, there's this walkway bridge between the church and the house, um, and we were on that bridge this morning and about three hours afterwards, uh, some mad, possibly stoned, um, city of Denver, uh, uh, garbage truck driver came flying in the opposite direction in the side alley, smashed, managed to smash into the space between the church and the house. So he, he literally wedged this thing in and hit the bridge on the top. So the whole structure this is a hundred hundred year old structure is now like hovering a, over a trash can. Yeah. Or like not, could, a, a trash could collapse at any point. Did it hit the, the church as well or mostly? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he, he jammed in between this tiny and, uh, his excuse was, Oh, I just started working here. I used to drive smaller garbage trucks and I was like, I'm going to kill this guy if I find him. Oh my goodness. So they, the, they told us the engineers like, you can't go back in the house. So all 11 of us are, we're, I have one set of clothes and we bum some toiletries off people. And Can we put hard hats on and do like a rescue mission? Oh, we're going to in the next few days. But for right now, <laughs> we're hanging out here at the seminary and uh, the story is to be continued. So wow. just uh, another casual Tuesday morning at St. Joe's. Good morning. Yeah. <laughs> Good afternoon. Exactly. Welcome, welcome to life. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I have nothing that exciting. Nothing That's, that exciting? Uh, no. I don't know. St. Joe's, it's like always crazy. So like last night, there's a homeless group of people out there. We're talking and it's kind of like, what do you do? They're sleeping in tents in the parking lot. My favorite story was a couple weeks ago. So we have this underground parking garage. This is kind of a magical place. This would be a pilgrimage site. Come come see it sometime. Mother Cabrini used to pray here, which is beautiful. Her feast day was just yesterday. Um, But I remember uh, this is maybe two months ago. There's a no parking sign in front of our garage door. All right. And, but this is a huge Hispanic church. So it fills up massive amounts. So there's always people double parking our garage, which means we can't get out or get in. So one day I was, I saw a car there and I was like, that's it. I'm done. So I just parked, I just parked them in, you know, like, like a T and just walked into the house and I was like, I'll let them figure it out. (laughs) They're not leaving. And the guys knock on the door and they're like, hey, the guy who owns the car uh, is outside. And I was like, imagine this huge Hispanic guy is going to like just knock my head off. 
And I look outside, it's the Archbishop of Denver. <laughs> I was, I was going to guess Bishop Jorge, but that's even better. Yeah. Archbishop Aquila was like, is that your forerunner? And I was like, yeah. Yep. And he's like, You're, you double parked me. And I was like, like well, you, you double parked, parked us. And he's like, I'm the Archbishop. And I was like, okay. So, no parking signs. Don't pull. Okay. Exactly. So never a dull moment wow. at uh, St. Joe's. So. Man. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. I had a wonderful Monday. You did. Um, partially induced by, by you, which will bring us right into topic because right we, we got to go. Um, I went up to Boulder with Father Peter Sersich for okay. their... Um, 6 p.m. student mass. So shout out to the CU Buff Catholic uh, focus team and all the students up there. Uh, a couple of them were listeners. One of them said, I, I recognize your voice. I, That's weird. And went and got a sandwich. Of course you did. Um, and then they realized who I was and we had a good chat. So shout out to the team. But was up there for uh, his vocations awareness week. So he invited me up to preach and um, I'm hang out with the kids. Kids. I say kids. College students. Right. But I was talking with Father Peter. It's like, they're kind of kids. They're kind of adults. They keep staying the same age, and I get older. Right, so what's that's the, true. That's how the saying goes. Uh, but had a great time chatting with Father Peter, who just got back from Rome. So he's he's re- researching specifically biblical narrative, and he's all on John the Baptist. John the Baptist is kind of everything right now. And I'm doing my thesis on the Holy Spirit. So we just had some rip-roaring conversations that nobody else would probably like to join, but we loved yeah. on John the Baptist, Holy Spirit, anointing. Could have brought Father Daniel Eusterman in about chrism and whatever. So this is, we get into the academia of uh, everything. But as we're, we're sitting there um, reflecting, I realize it's like 9.30, so I decide hey, Father Peter, can I just, uh, can I crash up here for, for the night? And he's like, sure, we got empty bed in the guest room. So I come back, uh, now Monday morning, our day off, Monday morning. I'm driving down from Boulder, nice leisurely morning, and uh, go to work on my thesis. So I'm down at Platte Park, nice. no, Platte, uh, Platte River Trail, down by Santa Fe, whatever. I can't remember that trail section. Um, there's a Nixon's Coffee kind of right off the bike trail there. And there's a nice spot. There's an access, kind of parking lot access to the trail there. So I park in the parking lot, walk down, and I'm working there. And this biking club, they were like 65 and older biking club shows up. And it's hilarious because half of them are like can't hear well. And so they're like hollering at each other and what? 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 I can't hear. And then others are like making fun of the ones who can't hear. And then the, the lady who's in charge is kind of like telling everybody what's up. And then there's like this clique of women who are kind of like know how to push her buttons because she wants to be in control. Uh-huh. And I'm just like, wow. It's like the, the 65 and older seminary version of just everybody pushing on their buttons. But it was hilarious. And then they finally want to take a picture. So they asked me if I can take the picture. And the guy comes up to me and he's like, they're, they're they want to take a picture and we're going, I haven't even had time to eat my gluten-free sandwich. And I was just laughing. Like he had to, he had to emphasize gluten-free. Gluten-free. Yeah. He didn't have time. She's rushing me. It was hilarious. So big family drama in the biking community. But I then leave, uh, cause I can't ride anymore. Do some editing at Breckenridge brewery. I'm having a wonderful day. So I can't, Sounds can't good, ride yeah. anymore. So I grab a beer to format. And all of this is I'm down South because I had bought a, movie ticket to the Barbie movie Oh yeah, at a 3.50 matinee because I got a text from Father John three days ago. Not even. I think it was, yeah. We we need to discuss the Barbie movie (laughs) because you just had your guys watch it. Sunday night. (laughs) So you watch it Sunday night. I book a a matinee because streaming it was going to cost me 20 bucks. It was like 12 bucks to get a matinee theater. 
So I show up to the River Point Regal Cinema. <laughs> I think I'm the only person in the theater, not just in the movie. I think I'm the only person in the theater. That's There's amazing. three other cars. It's yeah. like the staff. And I walk in, and the guy's like, oh, hey, welcome. Good afternoon for a movie. And I'm like, yeah, it You're is. You're hiding the ticket. And then I'm like, I have to scan the ticket, and I'm like, don't look at me. <laughs> and he's just kind of like, hmm, Barbie, okay. So I go in to the, the Barbie movie. I'm the only person in the theater. Center seat. Probably for the best. <laughs> Waiting. I've got my notebook because I'm ready to take notes because this is high-level research. Oh, yeah. And uh, don't say I never did anything for Catholic stuff. That's right. Um, and I'm sitting there, and the movie's supposed to start at 3.50. It's 4 o'clock, and they haven't even gotten off like the normal like TV advertisement. So I'm like, they, nobody's hit play because nobody's in the theater. They've forgotten I'm here. Uh-huh. And they're like, how, how badly does this guy want to watch the Barbie movie? So I come out at like 4.02, 12 minutes after the movie was supposed to have started, which is typically previews, and I have to like shamefully shuffle up to the guy and be like, hey, question, um, movie's supposed to start at 3.50? Is it starting? We don't even have previews yet. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it'll happen. It'll happen. Uh, that's, that's normal. I'm like, he forgot to press play. Yeah. So I go back to the theater, and it's starting with the, like, hey, welcome to Regal uh-huh. Cinemas, da-da-da. I then proceed to watch the movie for two hours, uh, taking notes. I actually enjoyed it, to be honest. It was kind of funny. Nice. Um, so that is how I, uh, I publicly humiliated myself. For the podcast, for you, I'm hoping to reimburse the $12. Um, if anybody out there in listener land wants to donate to greater uh, research like this, be, oh, sure, yeah. be sure to uh, write us a check. We, we're doing cutting-edge well, theological I, research. I appreciate you doing, you know, <laughs> setting aside the other tasks, such as writing a thesis yeah. um, to do real research for yeah, the podcast you know. and watch the Barb movie. What precipitated the whole thing was... Um, so this summer I heard about the movie coming out and I was like, yep, definitely never going to see that. That sounds so <laughs> lame. That sounds like the lamest thing I have ever heard in my entire life. And people were talking about it. And then last week, brother Mark Lederhose, who is a disciple of the hearts of Jesus and Mary down at and, uh, St. Mary's Catholic Church local, he's a student here, pulls me aside like very intentionally. And he's like, I need to talk to you. And I am thinking <laughs> vocational crisis, family death, something. He's like, have you seen the Barbie movie? And I was like, yeah, of course I haven't. What kind of question is that? And he's like, you have to see it. And he's like, all of us. And he starts naming uh, Father Noriega, uh, Father Granados. Like he's dropping like, these are like world-class theologians who love this movie. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. And uh, he's like, you got to see it. So I was like, all right. So talking to the guys, nobody's seen it. We had uh, community night on Sunday night, watched it surprised very surprised very interested the general house consensus i text you guys and for whatever reason the texts weren't returning so so i I thought you were just totally embarrassed (laughs) because i was like blowing you off i was like hey we're podcasting in like 36 hours but if you go watch the barbie movie did those come through finally nothing nothing came through so i was like pull up what i responded so i was like okay these guys are like horrified that i would even see like they're not even making fun of me responding they're just not Silent even treatment they're not even responding to the group uh, uh catholic stuff uh text message i was like oh man so i'm really happy for yeah you. so you you had texted uh have you guys seen barbie i just watched it with my guys think it's probably worth mentioning or discussing on the podcast at some point Jacob, it's your topic. Um, do you want to do this? No basically. response. He gets no response. What I said is, I haven't yet, but I could before Tuesday. No response from you because you didn't get mine. And I said, within that interim, I went and bought the ticket because I realized I was going to stream it that night, uh-huh. <laughs> but realized it was cheaper to go to the theater. So I said, I'm going to see it tomorrow. My topic was going to be the story is, uh, was going to be similar to this as well. So, um, And then Sean, this, the next morning, goes, yeah, morning, gents. Haven't seen it either, but I'm happy to see it if you'd like. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, and you haven't received any of that. So, um, to put your mind so at I'm ease, pleasantly surprised that we're doing this right now. If anybody hasn't, or if you if you've stuck with us and haven't turned off this episode, um, we will mention the Barbie movie, but in a broader context. Right. So, what I was what I was really intrigued by um, engaging pop culture, classic literature, just reflection on anthropology, humanity, who is man, who is woman. Um, I think about it a lot, and so. I think one of the best things, and you agree with this, is you do this in your classes. Incorporate your theological thinking with classic literature. That's our paper that we always write for right. you. And I think it's incredibly valuable to read because you, when you read, you receive two very important things. You receive the author's perspective, the author's insight into other people. So you see how somebody else sees the world, sees characters. And a good author is going to write well-developed characters both men both you know, and women. And I think it's very interesting to see how women write characters and how men write characters. And I think it's valuable to, for men to understand how women think about men and women. And it's valuable for women to understand how men think about men and women. And that comes through when the author's writing because it's just, that's, that's what it is. And you enter into um, kind of a dialogue with the contemporary stuff, the films we're going to mention, the contemporary thought that's around us right now. When you read classic literature, you also enter into the the history of thought and, and different time periods and different cultures. So um, you're reading Pride and Prejudice right now. I pulled it out for this to kind of reference a couple of things. Jane Austen, Victorian England. She's a fascinating writer. She writes incredibly well-developed uh, kind of multidimensional characters, not multidimensional like Marvel, but... They're not flat characters. Um, they're, they're true kind of developed characters that have flaws and have growth arcs, um, whether it's towards virtue or towards vice. So I think she's a very compelling writer, but she also writes from a feminine perspective. And then there's also the veneer, or the overlay of Victorian England. So there's, there's multiple things that we're engaging. But there's something about classic literature. Do you read a character and you said, yeah, that's me? Or, oh, I see myself in that. Or, oh, like, uh, I'm reading The Betrothed That was well. you with Mr. Darcy, I presume. Yes, yeah, of course. Of course yeah. More Mr. Darcy at the end, once he's already perfect, okay. not before yeah. when he's yeah. prejudiced and prideful. You right. know? Um, I'm reading a book called The Betrothed as well, because I'm ADHD and can't focus on one book for more than you know a couple chapters. But in the betrothed, there's this character, this kind of priest in the lo- local village, and he's a terrible priest. He just every decision he's making is made out of fear and self-preservation. And I read him, and I, it terrifies me because I just see how easy it is, from a human standpoint, to to devolve into self-preservation. And that's just like a human character flaw. Mm-hmm. But then you see it in a priest, and you see how it affects the characters around him. And God's providence is working throughout that whole book, which is one of the beautiful things about that book. If you haven't read it. But I'm reading that, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. I could become that character. I could be that priest, and that terrifies me. I hate that. There's uh, Bishop Borromeo, not Charles Borromeo, but I think his uncle, who is a bishop, um, is a character in there, and he's a saintly character. And so you read him, and you're like, oh, that's the type of priest I want to be. So you get both of those within that. Um, So I I called up my sister yesterday. I was like, Leah, I need a female perspective, particularly on Jane Austen. Um, And we talked through the book a little bit, and, and she just said, one of the things she loves about reading Jane Austen, but just literature in general and, and well-written characters, is she says, I see what I could become, both negatively or positively, within these characters. So she's like, I see, I see the good, 
the virtue in Elizabeth Bennett. I see her vices, and I see those in myself. So there's something about reading that's a bit of a Rorschach test, hmm. and that you, you, it is a mirror to you. Uh, scripture is the ultimate at this. I think it's St. Ephraim has this, one of his canticles or his songs, because he, he used to sing his, um, his homilies. So these hymns of St. Ephraim were like his sung homilies a lot of times. We should tell Father Brian Larkin to do that. <laughs> so he, he would sing, he'd sing that, uh, some of his homilies, or he'd sing kind of poetically. And then he also wrote um, kind of songs for the liturgy, portions of the liturgy. And there's one where St. Ephraim, I, b- I believe it's Ephraim, probably wrong, but uh, he talks about how Scripture is a mirror. And when you read Scripture, it's like holding up a mirror to yourself and you will see the evil within you, and you will see the virtue within you. And so scripture does that. And I think all other narrative structure does that. And that's what fascinates me most about the Barbie movie. We're back to Barbie. People on all sides of the political spectrum seem to have a take on the Barbie movie right now. I was oblivious to it. I was blissfully flying away from the sphere of Barbie movie you know, criticism. But it's fascinating me that you're super liberal kind of woke side and then your super conservative kind of angry side to the extremes people within both of those parties some love it and some hate it both sides it's not like all this side or all over there everybody's got to take and some people are seeing they're all seeing like an ally to their agenda in the movie so that fascinates me i don't know if oh yeah i, I mean there's a lot in that i would say um the well, before going into the Bard movie, I have a lot of thoughts on that, but I just want to say I had another wonderful encounter with the feminine because I gave a uh, talk at the Well-Read Mom conference on Saturday, which there's a lot of podcast listeners there and uh, some of our friends. And But it was like I get to have a conversation with 200 of probably the most intelligent Catholic women in in Denver. I mean, it was, it was amazing. Just the Q&A time, the talk was really – it was such a joy. And – uh, Marcy Stockman, shout out to her. She's the foundress of, uh, of the, I think it's really like a movement and it's all these women who are just faithfully reading, um, the great books because they just got tired of kind of getting together and talking about, you know, what's the best diaper option for whatever the mom's club was talking about. And, uh, so they, they're doing something that's incredible and, uh, I'm really inspired by, but I just had this like full, full <laughs> random weekend of, of the speaking to these women and very intelligent and thoughtful and then watching the Barbie movie with a bunch of dudes. I was like, this is just <laughs> welcome to a random weekend uh, in my life. But um, I don't, I'd be curious to hear what they would have to say because I bet the majority of them haven't seen it and probably were like, why would we, why would we waste our time seeing it? <laughs> but the basic thing that I found compelling about the Barbie movie, which is why it, and you summarized it well, these two extremes are fascinating by it. In my, t- in my read on it, it's a feminist critique of feminism. Yeah. I think it's a feminist critique on feminism while also critiquing what they would call patriarchy. It's, it's a critique of the world we've built, the culture we've built, where the, I think the culminating moment is when the, spoiler alert, if you're going to go see the Barbie movie, mute now. I think the culminating moment for me is when they're back in Barbie land and the woman from the real world who's ex- expressed herself as I'm just a boring mom with a boring job doing boring things. And then she kind of just lets out kind of like opens the, uh, the gasket and lets out the steam of, 
I'm supposed to be this and that. And those seem contradictory. Like I'm supposed to be this type of mother, but not too doting. I'm supposed to you know, love my kids, but not too much. I'm supposed to want kids, but also want to be um, the high powered professional. I'm supposed to lead, but also be not be mean. I'm supposed to, you know, all these things that it's like, how do we wrestle with the mess of reality of humanity of who humans are? When everybody is telling me I have to be this way or this way. And I'm like, well, who am I? Who am I? Who, who am I made to be? Who am I supposed to? And, and what are my desires that are properly ordered? So I think that's where it's compelling to me is Greta Gerwig, who's the director of it. Um, I actually really respect. I think, I think she's a, a very powerful creative force. She's explicitly feminist in her, her worldview. Um, and she defends that. But when she talks about her feminism, she's always talking about how her feminism is more of a humanism. And she's like, if feminism is not elevating everybody, it's not true feminism. And so she's like, the feminism that will put men down isn't really a true feminism. And so she's critiquing that side, while also she's got some critiques of like a masculine feminism who's saying they're feminist, but still is kind of trying to keep women down she's got that critique in there as well i think there's one one line where a guy is like oh oh you guys have uh, you guys have really gotten rid of the patriarchy he's like oh no no we've just gotten better at it we hide it now <laughs> and so there's a critique of kind of all different sides and depending on where you want to look at it you can find again oh i'm i'm kind of like that or i'm i'm not like that or i've done that or i've thought that and i think what she's really wrestling with is what does it mean to be and to be like who you are. Now, what's interesting is it's in this postmodern worldview where she's actually revealing a lot of the truth of the messiness of coming, coming to know yourself uh, and trying to be good. And we say good, be a good person, which really should be, be a virtuous person. But then we've kind of cut the legs off because we won't, we won't agree on an anthropology. Right. We won't say, well, this is actually man's proper end. And now that we know his end, we can actually say, what does it mean to be good? So she's kind of got these wonderful insights, these creative insights into the mess that the contemporary world has gotten itself in. And yet we still kind of have cut the legs off of saying, this is what humanity is. So there's still kind of some postmodern self-creation, self-imposition of who I am, um, that is in there. Yeah, I think that the um, um, the portrayal of men in the Barbie movie is deplorable. I mean, they are pathetic. Um, Ryan Gosling's character is this kind of obsessed with Barbie, kind of looking at him and affirming him, and then he goes into the real world and he rediscovers patriarchy, brings it back, and it's all it's all the Marxist dialectic because mm-hmm. what what marks modern modernity and postmodernity is the inability to hold things in complementarity. So it's always men versus women. It's always reason versus faith. It's always theology versus science. And it's, it's this whole, everything is kind of split apart dualistically in modernity. And then through Marx is dialectically opposed to each other. So the feminist movement from the late 1960s is fundamentally built on the eradication of, of patriarchy. And that's what the movie kind of centers around. But what, what, what brother Mark pointed me to and said, you need to watch for the, you need to watch it for this reason is the theme of maternity as being this kind of internal self critique of the feminist project, which is mm-hmm. women are second class citizens. It's the 1950s, whatever. Okay. There's truth in that. Um, that's not because of Christ. It's not because of the church, 
but it is the kind of that world. Um, I was with my friends Eric and, and Anna Hill baptized their kid on Sunday, and Eric, she was wearing this kind of this very nice dress, but we were joking. She looked kind of like a 50s housewife, and he kept saying, honey, baby, get me another old-fashioned. And she would be like, <laughs> oh, right away, honey. You know, And it was just this very funny kind of making fun of that, that world where uh, that really was, there was something deeply problematic in the vision of women and the complementarity of that life. And so the critique is real, um, but... They kind of can't get out of it. That's that's the yeah. that's the killer of of the story is that the loss of maternity does destabilize and and reduces woman even while she arrives at her perfection, her acum, where she's the president of the United States, winning the Nobel Prize, everything that's happening in Barbie Land. They they have all the power, mm-hmm. um, and yet this is totally destroying women. And so you can see how she's trying to kind of wor- work out a humanistic way but it it when you lose a sense of sexual complementarity and an ability to integrate two things diversity into unity which is sourced in the trinity um you you can't kind of put it back together so i thought it was just a very interesting study and again this is like a touch point and you and i like this with 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 movies and with culture right now is it it we can put our finger on kind of where where are we at culturally Mm -hmm. right now there's a there's a deep dissatisfaction with the product of feminism, which is that women are more anxious and more depressed and more miserable, yet they're and they're more confused in their identity, mm-hmm. um, and so there's this internal self critique. But then to dialectically oppose it with the the men trying to regain power so that they're not pathetic and yeah. desperate for Barbie. Um, yeah, and it's this bit of a an incoherence of the postmodern mind that we're the the principle of non-contradiction has kind of been tossed out. It's like, well, it's fine if things are contradictory. We just kind of keep bouncing between the contradictions, and we have the thesis, antithesis, synthesis, Marxist movement, and dialectic movement, and we're all just kind of becoming. And you, you see kind of the um, one of the lines in there was like, being human is to discover what it is to be human or something like that. So it's kind of this, like, um, you know, essence becoming being type of thing um, that that is very existential and it's so you've got this just stew of philosophical thought of rebellion and revolution but then also kind of like a coming to reflect on yourself and realize "Ah, there's something's not ordered here and i'm trying to get ordered and and so part of the critique is well we shouldn't be battling we actually shouldn't be in this kind of thesis antithesis dialogue where men versus women and we need to revert and invert and and i think there's a bit of like greta saying well the solution isn't women doing to men what apparently men have done to women but then also what's the solution here and and it's fascinating i'm sure there's people listening to this that are like why would you talk about feminism why would you grant that anything within the feminist movement might be good you know we're canceled on that end and then on the other side we're not doing justice to the true dangers and damages of patriarchy and so you aren't even a true feminist and so you're canceled (laughs) and we could be canceled or loved for this podcast on probably everything we're going to say and have already said and that's the Rorschach element that is is super intriguing. And I, I think the stories we tell about ourselves and about others um, is really telling. And I think one of the other um, characters of storytelling I've been reflecting on is biography, autobiography or just biography. And the Oppenheimer movie came out, uh, which is about um, Oppenheimer, the uh, inventor of the atomic bomb, and it's a biography written after his life, pulling from sources, pulling from him. I listened to uh, 
most of the the actual biography that it was based on on Audible. And I saw the film, and I think there's some intriguing things in there. We can talk about that another time. But the stories we tell about who we are, and then the stories other people tell about us, are never exactly the same. And then the, sto- the story history will tell about us is also not the same. And yet at the, at the core of that is a person who really exists and really is. And so these stories is fascinating. And we're doing that with men. We're doing that with women as a idea. The stories we're telling about men are the stories we're telling about women. Um, I don't know. I, I, I like your, your notion of the kind of the mirror or the Rorschach of when we encounter story. Because part of the talk I gave on Saturday, which I've been thinking about for a long time, is... And, and we're doing this is like the need to uh, reinsert ideas into life, kind of get them truths into life. And, and stories do that. They facilitate that relationship. Like when you, my mom came, I made my mom come to my talk and cause she's my well-read mom. And I was making fun of her about buying me socks at Nordstrom's when I'm 40 and doing all these things. And, um, but she, what she remembered and what she appreciated was the stories that I told throughout because they facilitate the ideas. This is how human beings understand things this is how god discloses himself he doesn't just give us kind of a system of ideas that reveal his inner life but it's always communicated through story and as you've heard me say and i've probably said on the podcast before john henry newman has that great line where literature he describes as the autobiography of humanity so it's not just the autobiography of humanity this idea but of jake machado of john nepple of whoever is reading and i think that um staying and steeping ourselves in in literature is not and i tried to encourage these these well-read moms to say what you're doing is so important because from the outside it looks like you're a bunch of women who are just really into literature and that's just your kind of specialization that's your hobby you know it could be a bunch of women who are really into chemistry or you know mm-hmm. you know some mathematics or something and it's like no literature is different because of the way that it communicates truths um it when Jane Austen lays out her ideas and pride, I'm struggling with pride and prejudice right now. It's, it's <laughs> not been the easiest. Um, I like persuasions a lot, but I'm, I'm giving her another go. Maybe it's the kind of Victorian thing. I just can't get into it as much. Um, now I literally can't get into it cause it's in a house that's basically been condemned by the city of Denver, which the city of Denver destroyed. Um, still kind of processing that. Um, but there is something about, we have to live, we have to keep interpreting our story in story, primarily in the story of God's saving work, which is scripture, which is what grounds the eternal truths um, and, and what sets the framework for these things. But then also, that's why we have to live in relationship to story, the story that postmodern man, the, the narrative that's being told mm-hmm. um, right now, the Barbie narrative um, has very particular presuppositions and ideas that are contrary to the Christian belief, the anthropology, the understanding of what men, men and women are, how they are equal and complement complimentary uh and yet there are abuses and there are real things the kind of decadence of a victorian age or the 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 last kind of gasping breaths of christendom in the 1950s um these things have to pass away but the truths and the realities are held strong and oftentimes literature communicates that with a power and a force in a way Mm -hmm. that you can get up and give ideas and talk about things abstractly but when it's back in the story uh, it brings a resonance that's just unlike anything else. Yeah, I, l- I watched a, in preparation of this, I watched an interview with um, Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie talking about the film, talking about kind of the feminist character of it and all things. And I was, I was intrigued by, Margot Robbie was the producer of it as well as the, the main actor. 
And she, she kind of was presenting things in, a, in an ordered kind of producer way and how we made this happen and how this came to be and, and the project and the people involved and all this stuff. And then when Greta was talking, she was talking very much as like an artist and intuitive who's feeling the film and feeling the characters and feeling the conflict between Mattel, which is this, um, this corporation who's produced uh, years of, you know, 50 years of Barbie and different degrees of like, oh, well, there's some problematic stuff, but it's actually, there's some really good stuff. And there's people who put their heart and life into, you know, making this brand. Um, and she's just kind of intuiting that was well as kind of her views of the feminine and the, the feminist movement. And she's just trying to kind of intuitively source all of this. And that's where narrative, literature, film is that mirror. And it's kind of an intuitive, it's not, it's not dialectic in itself. So even there's, there's, a, there's a conflict within the film, there's something about story that causes you to ponder, ref, reflect, review. Um, and there's some good laughs in there. You can laugh at yourself. You can, you know, there's a little bit of a, a sobering um, humor in, in it all. Uh, I don't think it's the greatest film ever made. I don't think it's this great transformational epoch, but I think it's intriguing. Her form of feminism um, and, and seeing, oh, there's some excess over there, but there are some really things we want to talk about um, compelled me. And, and she's done some other films I'm intrigued by. Uh, she did the Little Women film, which I talked to my sister about, and my sister said, yeah, the first time I watched that, I was really angry because she just, she just saw the feminist line making joe march she's just as good as any man she can she can write like any man and oh what a what a tragedy that she had to kind of like um suffer at the male publisher's hand in in this terrible deal with you know getting just to get herself published and she was she was frustrated by that the first time through she said i've watched it like four times now and she says she she said this i've watched it like two or three so not too far behind her um but in the subsequent watches, she's seeing this kind of nuance of there's a point where Joe March, who wants to be this writer, wants to be published, wants to be respected like male authors in her time when she wasn't and, and the contracts were <laughs> kind of pretty terrible for her, also wanted to experience love and companionship and family, who came from a good family wanting to. And so there's this nuance within her character, which isn't just the as woman, I must conquer this, uh, this realm of, of literature and be on top and be as good or better than men. It's like, no, I want to be respected in my ability to write, to uh, be published, but I also, like, it hurts so much to be alone and feel lonely and want to want this and desire this and haven't been able to find that, and I see my sisters finding it. And there's a, there's a character there, which I think goes back to the center of the Barbie movie from her, Greta's perspective of how do I live in this discordant world that has desires that can't all be achieved? That sometimes you have to say no to something when you're saying yes to something else. And then you're judged by what you said no to because now you've kind of idealized the other thing as the total end and therefore you must be rejecting the other. Rather than every choice we make is a yes to something and a no to something else. Um, so there's something very human in it, which I loved. All right, two questions for you. Number one, um, you talked about Mattel. Just to dive into the movie here for a minute. I'm sorry for those of you who haven't seen it or are completely not interested in this, but you've probably turned it off by now. Um, 
Mattel kind of embodies and symbolizes the uh, patriarchy. And that is the creator of the Barbie world, which seems to symbolize kind of the, the feminist project of the self-emancipated woman who can have girls night every night, who has guys kind of desperate for their attention, but has no need of them. Um, and then you have this character, Ruth, who ends up in the end of the book, who comes out of the Mattel world and actually is the founder of Barbie, who did it for her daughter, Barbara, mm-hmm. and kind of saying the truth of this was actually to try to... So uh, my question is, is Greta looking at this, the the director, the uh, writer of this, are they looking at it as that feminism actually is too sourced in patriarchy in terms of that they just kind of took over and did what men did and now you get Michelle Obama or whatever that is, you know? Um, Or is it actually trying to point to this was a project of women being mothered by women into and recovering what they actually are? Is that the kind of inner self-critique of of feminism? That's my first question for you. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a good question. There's definitely the inner self-critique and the critique of kind of women becoming combatants against themselves. Like the, the call to action she effectively makes in the end is women need to come together in the sisterhood to kind of like support each other, find, you know, establish society in a way that they can actually thrive and be who they are. So in in some sense, it's a critique of um, feminism, which is trying to impose what they critiqued in patriarchy on the world, but just with a matriarchy. So I think there's a critique there. Um, But then at the same time, um, it's it's intriguing to see that uh, Will Ferrell, who's the CEO character, Mm -hmm. at one point has this line of like, I got in here because I wanted to support. Like I got into this, I wanted to support young girls. I wanted, to, and and this was how I I thought I could do it. And I, you know, so it's like, um, there, there's a sense of like, well, oh, this is the way the world is, and so um, I, I wanted something different, but this is how I had to do it. Which is kind of that, yeah. Is is it all dialectic? Is it all power structure? Is it which we can't seem to escape from the world of viewing everything in a power structure and a power struggle. I think that's right on. That was kind of the way I was leaning because the end of it is so different than the end of pride and prejudice Mm -hmm. which is that you don't have you don't have this interplay pride and prejudice is the story of the the kind of the this kind of dance or this drama between the masculine and the feminine so there's so many dance parties in it that's true so (laughs) many dance parties um but the kind of the the victorian banter uh which I guess is really brilliant. Um, uh, I, you know, like I said, I'm kind of like I'm working <laughs> my way there. Um, and there's probably a lot of people who are like even more offended that I'm slamming Jane Austen, but I'm, I'm trying here, but I love what she's doing, which is that it's moving towards a deeper community. It's, it's moving towards a marriage and, and towards this, the possibility of complementarity and union between men and women. The Barbie movie does not end with that. And that's why I think it's, it's, comprehensively within this kind of feminist project of it's like women need to rediscover and find them find their meaning in the sisterhood as you said but it's not about i mean she says to ken at the end of the movie like you need to find yourself Mm -hmm. and he's like well i thought this would be ken and barbies and and it's very much so not that it's it's the women at the end of the movie together supporting each other to try and find each other and become more human Um, which again there's something noble in that but the masculine is made for the feminine. The feminine is made for the masculine. I, I don't think that they can find themselves apart from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where we can now speak in with kind of the heart of the church. And, and John Paul II has his letter to women that um, 
all the endowed groups read and and it's a wonderful letter it's a it's a reflection on on the feminine genius and the beauty of the feminine but it's always in relation and so the difference between dialectic and relation is a huge thing and so i don't think it's necessarily rooted in uh, an overarching feminist worldview that that's at the top i think the feminist worldview in the movie or in in, feminism, in life in, in general, everything yeah. I, I don't think it's the top i don't think i think the feminist worldview is under the umbrella of the postmodern individual, the individualist movement. That's where we've fallen. We have no understanding of subsidiarity anymore. We have the individual and the state. That's all that's left. And so the individual can enter into relationships, if it so choose, with the family, with the neighborhood, with the city. And then we've got the overarching state. Because it's no longer like the state is all of the lower, smaller uh, elements. The state is authority and the individual is authority, and they're kind of in conflict because we have the perspective of conflict is everything, power is everything. But I think the, the errors we're trying to point out in any of these movements that are postmodern is the individualism first. And so the individualism of the movie says, I need to find myself by myself in myself. And Ryan Gosling at the end of the film is wearing a sweatshirt that says, I'm Kenuff, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. Yeah. Secretly kind of want one. Um, but there's, there's this individual push of self-discovery and, and self-imposition uh, of, of being that doesn't receive being in relation. And that's where the, what we'd call it, the Catholic stance or the, the traditional perspective of the interpenetrating role of man and woman created in the image of God. That it's not one or the other, but both. And within relationality, within relationship, we come to know ourselves. This is John Paul II in Theology of the Body. He, in beholding the other, you come to know something about yourself. And then you're able to make a gift of yourself to the other. And in making a gift, you come to know yourself even more. And it's this relational element that really the individual movement can't kind of hold. Because the individualism is always going to be me against others. And so then we even have to like impose our will of a sisterhood or a brotherhood. And, and that's where it's just kind of this concoction of ideas that have truth in them, but aren't rooted in the truth of the complementarity. I think that's great. I mean, I, I think the, the, one of the takeaways for me was to realize the loss of sexual complementarity that men and women are made for each other, but are made distinctive. They're different it reveals a deeper metaphysical crisis that postmodernity is in. And you said it well. It's about are we relational in our beings or do we, are we individuals in our beings that we step in, in and out of relationships, what we're looking for. And I think if I was going to say the hallmark of postmodernity is self-creation. I determine what I am. And this is Sartre, this is Nietzsche, this is Heidegger. It's all kind of grounded in this uh, philosophically. But when you take that kind of metaphysical foundation, remove it, then you, you can never, you're swimming in this kind of cacophony of, of relational experiences and you don't actually know. And again, that's where you get into the vacuum and it's what's going to fill the vacuum is power. Mm -hmm. And that's where the Marxist thing kind of comes in. And there's different strands of feminism, but the most predominant one that we think of is, is a kind of Marxist feminism, which is that there's not equality, there's only diversity, and that women have been 
mistreated. The second sex, as Simone de Beauvoir wrote her famous book on, and we needed to kind of we need to kind of change the social, economic, and political structures so that women become CEOs, become presidents, become everything. And it's just a remarkable contrast from what I saw uh, the day before, yeah. which is just real women, the last real women the, who are just out there still doing it. And one of the questions that they were asking, and this is a little tangential, um, but I thought was really, really good was, you know, they kind of get a hard time because they're intellectual yeah. and, you know, we're also moms. So we're, we, we should be reading, you know, pious books, but kind of baking sourdough bread and doing these things. This is kind of one of the questions was asked. And it was like, how do we justify that we're not kind of masculizing our life uh, by trying to kind of take on this more intellectual aspect yeah. of our vocation? And I said, that, that's the that's what that's why their project is so important because mm -hmm. what they're retrieving is the authentic way that not only women are intellectual, but that all of human beings need to be, which is receptivity. Yeah, that's the key word, and that's written into the woman's body, and she's the preeminent icon and model of that. And that's where the Marian. Everything comes back to Mary. I'm so sorry, but it's it's the paradigm and it's the archetype of of the feminine, and there's just none of that in the language and in the swimming kind of chaos of postmodern feminism. Yeah, and I think we don't. Want, I, I don't want to step on a landmine, <laughs> but I think we're already um, canceled yeah, from we're, this we're podcast. Done. Two men talking about feminism. <laughs> done. Yeah. Um, we we take the externals as the concept of masculine or feminine too much. And I think that was, there's a bit of the initial feminist movement's critique was you have established a man is this list of traits and a woman is this list of traits. And if that ever bleeds, you're, you're actually a woman or you're actually, it's like oddly enough, um, with the transgender movement, it, it amazes me that what they're saying is no, because you are this way or interested in this type of thing, you must actually be a woman, not a man, or you must be a man, not a woman. You can't be a more effeminate man or a tomboy girl anymore. You are inherently the other. Why? Because your externals look like the other. And so what they're responding to is, are we being too masculine by being intellectual and wanting to pursue this? Like, absolutely not. You're being human. And so these external lists of this is what makes a man, this is what makes a woman. And let's just make everybody angry now. I saw a uh, hoodie at World Youth Day that really made me angry. And it was like this totally jacked like cartoon figure, like a, like a military-looking man holding a rosary. And it said, real men pray the rosary. And what it's saying, which I agree, real men pray the rosary. But what it's saying is real men look like this and pray the rosary. And again, we're focusing on the externals. Some of the most empowering men in my life who've shown me what it is to be masculine weren't that guy. I could name them, but I don't want to. <laughs> but like, why are we strictly looking at the externals? And this is even a critique of, of like Barbie saying with, oh, well, this is what it means to be an empowered woman is this job, this job, this job, this job. And then the creator of Barbie said, no, I created a stereotypical Barbie because then she could come to know who she is. Uh, there's, I'm not layering President Barbie is the way to be a feminine Barbie. And I think we do the same on both sides. And so what is it to be truly human? 
there's a feminine way to maybe engage with these things or not. Uh, and there's a bit of a spectrum of like, I, somebody could be a little more effeminate and still be a man and somebody could be a little more masculine and still be a woman. And yet the truth of what man and woman are doesn't change. Right. I would agree with that. Fundamentally, I think that I might, I might say, I wouldn't talk about effeminate men. I would say that we've aligned certain values or even virtues with this is what men are. Mm-hmm. You know, yesterday we're at the McCoy's house and they need to uh, get the refrigerator out of the basement. And I'm basically helpless when it comes to anything <laughs> practical. But I got uh, Riley Helga with me and he gets out the drill and, you know, starts taking the doors off and everything. And we're lifting this thing out of the basement. And, it's, and Melissa's just watching us happy as a clam and, and rooting us on. And so you're thinking, well, that's the woman. She can't do that because she's not strong. Now, that's absolutely false in the sense that she's physically the smallest of the four of us. Well, Riley's pretty small also, but, <laughs> but she is one of the strongest women that I know and strongest mothers. And so, and I think of Mary as a strong kind of woman, but she's not masculine. And so we have to really think more deeply about what is the language of values and even virtues that we correlate with the masculine and the feminine? How do they correspond to maleness and femaleness, the bodilyness? And, and going back to the deepest thing for me, the thing that I think about all the time is that receptivity is not passivity. And this language, which unfortunately goes back to the Greeks, that passivity is attached to women because of the, the way they understood the biology of sex and activity for man, uh, this is what has to fundamentally be broken down. Is that, and this is that when you get into the logic of the metaphysics of gift and, and the truth of receptivity, which is what a lot of these 20th century guys are, are helping us kind of understand more deeply, you realize that receptivity is an action. Mary's fiat was an act. It was the most noble and, and beautiful human act when she said, be it done. And that was a strong act. Mm-hmm. It wasn't this kind of meek, um, soft, passive act. It was the strongest, most powerful act that any human being has ever done. And so we have to really think uh, about that and, and kind of move beyond this kind of machismo weakling thing with yep. men. And then also women who the, the power women in the, in the, you know, um, wearing, you know, whatever. And then the kind of stay-at-home mom, and they're everybody's feeling marginalized by these caricatures, but post-modernity cannot answer this question. It and, just cannot. And it's happening in all our spheres. The Republican presidential uh, candidate debate or whatever, one of the candidates is a woman, and she, she was one of the guys through a line of like, we don't need another Dick Cheney in three-inch heels. And her response was, they're not three-inch heels, they're five-inch heels, and they're ammunition, or they're a weapon or something. And it's like everything is just... It's just like in that regard, like yeah. hyper masculinized in this way. Like she has to respond in like, no, I'm a fighter too. And these are actually a weapon. <laughs> and it's, I, I was intrigued by that. I take it for what you will. I don't want to dig into that too much. But I think the, the Barbie movie and Greta is making a critique on this responsive masculinity movement uh, that is more the machismo. The, well, I'm just, I'm acting fine. I'm going to be a, a kind of a, a bro who's just kind of, uh, swole and a, a kind of oppressive and I'm just going to do my thing and and uh, in this sense I think there's a strong critique of a, a movement that kind of is a distortion of masculinity um, and I loved I, I laughed out loud when Ryan Gosling was like no this is my Ken's uh, mojo dojo casa house and right. like, you don't have to say house after casa or dojo he's like yeah but it sounds cooler <laughs> and I'm going to critique 
uh, a strain of masculinity that I've become aware of in the Catholic world. And this came through uh, a good female friend of mine, Catholic, wonderful, um, who had two different women come up to her who were bemoaning or sad in dating encounters that they had recently had. And both of these women had been asked by the men that they were going on some dates. They weren't even in a relationship, just had been on some dates. And the guy feels the need to ask, well, what do you think about the biblical principle of women being submissive to men? It's ridiculous. And that's, stop. If you're that guy, stop. Yeah. Like, that's, that's not it. And so I said, you know what you can tell these women? You can tell them, I'm all about it when you understand it as your mission is under Christ. I'm happy to submit under Christ's mission if that's your mission. But if it's your mission and you want me to be submissive under that and bring you a beer broski, like yeah. a, a brewski bro or whatever, yeah, yeah, stop, stop. And so there is there is a strain of like, no, I need to assert my masculinity, which is now men doing what women have been doing to men because they accuse men of having done it to women. It's just, it's just this constant conflict of like, no, I must be the one in power. I must be the one that you submit to. And it's sickening and yeah. it's not okay. I would say as a final comment from me, and then I'll let you kind of riff on anything else. Um, where do we go from here is the question in a Barbie world, um, which is, which again is Marxism is sublimating on itself. It's collapsing inward. It doesn't work. Um, but the feminists are, are really upset about the trans transgender movement because it's, it's, it's hitting the delete button on any distinction whatsoever, which is the source of the whole power and dialectical movement. But they so, also can't actually really say no to it from the same principles right, that they're working from. Right. And that's the, that's the cognitive dissonance of this isn't okay, but also how can I say it's not okay? Right. And the, uh, and then the larger tragedy, the kind of meta tragedy is that modernity is in, intensely masculine. It's a masculinization of the world in a false way, technology, industry, and Gertrude von Lefort speaks about this in her book, The Eternal Woman, which is an absolutely fantastic read and a great corrective. But she talks about the, the masculine madness of a secularized age, that we're living in a time where, um, I mean, I was fighting with these four sisters on Thursday afternoon or, or Sunday afternoon. This is all, all women this weekend, uh, break from our regular life. But they were just, just on me about church is teaching this, church is teaching that. And it's just like, it's all this kind of activistic tech, technocratic way of thinking about things. And so what do we have to do? I, I, I just am like, let's go back to reading Jane Austen, but let's go back to Dante and let's look at Beatrice again. And let's look at a world that understood the beauty of women because Mary was at the center of creation and Mary was the, the true Rorschach or mirror uh, of the divine, so to speak. She was the one who was manifesting for us the reality of what it means to be a human being. Cause that's what all of this is. As you said at the beginning and coming full circle, this is a crisis of anthropology. We've lost what it means to be a human person, which is not something that we can figure out. That's a mystery that is given to us, gifted to us by God himself. Yeah. I would just echo the, the Gertrude von Lefort book, uh, eternal woman. If you disagree with everything we've said, if you think maybe some of it, whatever, just read her mm-hmm. and then totally. Assess her on her own merits, because that book is incredible. From a, a female perspective, writing about femininity in relation to Mary, who is the archetype of femininity, who is also then the archetype of the church, the archetype of man's responsiveness. Man is humanity, responsiveness to God. Uh, take, take her on her own merit. So it's a short book. I'd, I'd suggest men and women read that book. So that's the first thing. Second, um, 
in, in regard to autobiography. We're trying to sort out like who we are and, and understand ourselves. Uh, the Confessions of St. Augustine is an autobiography reflecting back on his life in light of grace, which means he's reflecting on himself in relation to God and God's providence through life, how he drew him here, how he experienced the pulling, the drawing, the, the twitch upon the thread that's drawing him in, and then his inability to respond to it, his inability to get rid of his vices, his inability to say no to all of the things that he thought would give him satisfaction. And his great line is, my heart was restless, O Lord, until it rests in you. So the centrality, and this is the critique of uh, feminism as humanism or uh, uh, I don't know what the counter of like a masculine movement, which is also humanism. The critique of humanism is if you re- you remove God, who is the source and creator, from any of this, you won't understand yourself because you are created. And if you are thinking you're creator and creator of yourself and you need to come to know yourself in that way, which is the modern, postmodern movement, it's not going to find its end. So that's reading biography, autobiography. That's the, the fruit of it, to reflect on yourself. Um, you know, it goes back to Plato and Socrates that, you know, first know thyself. But then to engage other stories, to engage other people, we don't cancel. We don't just get frustrated and shut down into our little echo chamber, actually have the dialogue. Um, be able to go watch Barbie, be able to read something and not just get super angry all the time. Or on the flip side, say, look, they are on our side. You know, this is, this is for me. This is my, it's like, I actually enter into the dialogue and why my final point, why Jane Austen, I think, is so powerful. And my sister pointed this out. She's writing a story about Elizabeth and Darcy, but the book itself has all these other stories who are complete within themselves. Hmm. All the characters have their own story arc. All the characters are their own character. And so often we think of ourselves as, and this is a, a Gen Z, main character energy. We think we're the main character in everything. And everybody else is our bit character. It's like, we're the main character in our life, and they're the main character in their life, but all of that is in relation to everybody else. They have a life that they're trying to figure out, and we're trying to figure out our own. And Jane Austen looks at these characters in their total life, and what she's doing, she's never critiqued as being a moralist because she writes so well, but in the end, she's looking at virtue and vice. Mm -hmm. And this gets back to, there is goodness. There is virtue. There is an end of man to flourish John Paul II talks about the person who has uh, known themselves so well that they can make them uh, make of themselves a sincere gift. That's all. John Paul II is all about gift. He says to know yourself in Christ, in God, anthropologically uh, understood as theocentric, not uh, anthropocentric. You know, come to know yourself. Gaudium et Spes 22, uh, Jesus Christ reveals man fully to himself. Now that I know myself, I can become a self-master. I can become a virtuous person. And in the self-mastery, I'm now able to give myself. And that's always the end for John Paul II, to be able to make a gift of oneself. And in that turn, the knowing of oneself is to become a gift, which is life for others. Why? Because our end is relationship with God in true goodness, true virtue. And so the conversation that's not being had anywhere is what is good? What is virtue? Jane Austen says it. That's why my sister can say, wow, I could become a monster like that or a saint like that. And that's when we, we encounter, oh, there's an end. There is actually sanct- sanctity and viciousness. 
And the postmodern world wants to say there's neutral value, there's no real saint, there's no real uh, vicious person. Everybody's just who they are. It's beyond good and evil. It's and Nietzsche. It's all yeah. equal. And yeah. I think that's inherently the issue at play. And, and if we put those legs down on the tripod again, we ground again that we're first created by God and understand ourselves as created, and then we understand ourselves in relation, which means giving and receiving of gift. Then maybe we can start to not have these distortions that we see with uh, extreme machismo um, masculinity, which honestly I see from kind of the, maybe the Joe Rogan crowd at times. Mm -hmm. And then you've got this kind of what we'd call like a radical feminism that wants to just dominate on the other end. And these are both errors and cliffs to fall off of. So that's my thought. Love it. This has been very interesting. I'm happy you uh, were humble enough to go to the matinee and buy a Barbie (laughs) ticket and make sure the guy press play on the show. Yeah, me too. Um, fun. I, I really appreciated this. This was fun. Uh, we hadn't discussed either of these. We didn't know where either of us were coming from. We have a shared vision, worldview, perspective uh, for the most part. But I loved the really the dialogue element of kind of seeing what you were, were picking up. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is why the podcast is such a gift to us, to be able to kind of process these things and talk through them in life as brothers. And so... Um, I'll give a shout out to a massive shout out to all of the ladies who were at the Well-Read Mom conference and just for the great witness that they are. It was such a joy. We live in a world of men and uh, it was just, it was a great gift to me, especially Susan Severson and, Mar- and Marcy Stockman who set up and this relationship all started through the podcast a year ago when we were doing the East of Eden stuff. So it's come full circle and now there's new friendships that have been born. So thanks to them. Love it. I've already mentioned her, uh, but my sister, shout out to Leah. Um, Getting, I, I love chatting with her and seeing she's recently become a mom uh, with my niece and uh, it's just wonderful to see her and her femininity and her um, her gift of self to, to her daughter uh, and just seeing their family grow is, is a gift so shout out to you thanks for your insight your feminine insight uh, I believe this will come out on Thanksgiving Day so happy Thanksgiving hey, to everybody Thanksgiving and then uh, we will be back and we're on the cusp of advent and then almost rolling into 2024 so it's great to be with you today catholic stuff podcast at gmail.com thanks for listening we'll see you next week